We are learning Daf Ayin Zayin, starting from the Mishnah, three lines down. So, last couple of days have been a very, very complex, tough sugya back and forth. Today we're going to take it easy, and we're going to learn all about certain defects that the man can have. We've been focusing so much on the woman's blemishes and the makatos and the ksuba and the question of whether they were there at the time of the Kedushin. Today, we're just going to talk about what happens if the husband has a physical defect. And again, by Torah law, it's all really up to the man to decide on divorce. But, but there are certain rights that Chazal gave to the woman where they understand that they, they have to protect her. And if, if it's something that's not livable with her, you can't have such a husband, so then she can demand a divorce. So, you have a man, he develops moment. Simply, this means, means after the time they've already been married. So, they've already, they're already married, he didn't have defects, but now... He's developing these divas. We don't force him to divorce his wife. Meaning, the idea is, is the woman cannot demand the divorce. Basic women are not something which is warrants a divorce from the man. And even though it seems one-sided, but that's the idea. For a husband, the defects in his wife is so bothersome, he can demand the divorce. But in the, the other way around, she cannot demand the divorce. However, that's only small minor defects. It's a major one. So then she could demand it. In other words, she only overlooks, we're talking about the, nat- the natural tendency in society is only to overlook the, the small defects in the man. But the big ones, there we would in fact force him. So the Gemara now gives us two different versions of, right, of what the correct nusach, the correct text in the, in the, in the Mishnah was. Ravita Tani Noldim. Ravita was teaching the Mishnah, he had the gear so that they came, they, they were born, they developed. Meaning they came about after the marriage. It's not a question of that the, did the husband trick her with these, with these defects. It's a question of the fact that they develop after the marriage already started. Rav taught the Mishnah that the defects were always there before the marriage. So we have two different ideas. According to Chibarav, the Mishnah is talking about that the defects were known even before the marriage. So the Gemara explains. According to the one that says that we don't force the divorce if they came, certainly if they were there from before. Why is it kol Because if they were there from before, then we basically say the wife knew about the condition and she accepted it. So the whole discussion should only be if they developed afterwards. But if they were there from before, presumably the wife knew about the condition and if she accepted it then, so then, you know, there's no, there's no way if she once accepted it for her to come along now and start claiming that I don't want to be married to this guy. According to the one who said that the Mishnah is that they, uh, that they were there from before, uh, if it developed later, then she could demand a divorce. So basically, the Machlokas is, if Mumim developed afterwards, one opinion is saying then by definition, she could always demand the divorce, no matter what type of defect it is, even a minor defect. It developed, she could say, I can't live with this guy. I would never, I can't do this anymore. If they were there from before, there it's a little bit more questionable because if she knew about it and she accepted it, so you accepted it. So if you accepted it, then what kind of business do you have now coming along and saying, oh, I'm not, I can't deal with this. You knew about it. So if you knew about it and you accepted it and you can't cry about it now. So that's the dispute between the two different Amarama. Our mission is telling, telling us a, a basic idea that a woman can't demand a divorce about her husband's defense. But according to one opinion, that's only if she knew about it at the time of the condition and she accepted it. If they came later, she could demand the divorce. And the other opinion was saying no, even in a scenario that she knew about it, um, it, 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 only in the scenario where she knew about it from before can she not demand the divorce, but if they develop later, she could demand the divorce. Now, the only question we have to ask is, why is the Gemara assuming that if the man had a defect at the time of the condition, the woman knew about it, right? We spoke about many cases in the last couple of days where the woman had a defect and she tricked her husband. So presumably the idea is that the woman that we're talking about, that any woman would be mocked on, is only a woman that's exposed. And that's why presumably she knew, she knew about it. So now the Gemara tries to prove 
one way from the Mishnah. Tanan, what does Rishim Gamliel say? Rishim Gamliel said, It's only minor defects, if it's major ones, we do compel divorce. It's good according to our view that we're talking about ones that develop later. That's why we can understand the distinction between big and small. She's not going to be mocha on a big one, but a small one she could overlook. If you say we're talking about that the defects were there before the marriage, what difference if they're big or small? Either way, she knew about it and accepted it. Meaning the point that the Gemara is making is, if you're going to tell me the reason why she can't demand the divorce is because she knew about it and accepted it, then there's no way to, be, to make a split between a, a large or a small defect. If the idea is that they developed after the marriage and the question is, could she overlook them? Then we could understand you overlook a small one, not a big one. But if the point is, no, really you can't overlook blemishes. But the point is, if you knew about it and accepted it, so then you're stuck with it. So then what's the difference, what the size of the blemish is? So the Gemara tells us a very psychological insight. When she first got married, she was under the impression, she thought she'd be able to handle it. But since it's such a major defect, now she says, I was wrong. I misjudged myself. It's a very interesting idea. She can say, I misjudged myself. I thought I could fucking it. I thought, you know, the love could push past everything. But I see that the reality is that it can't. So if it's a major defect, then that's a, that's a good time that I, mis, I misjudge myself. But if it's a small defect, so then she doesn't have that ability. Presumably, if you accept the small defect, you accept it. So we don't have a proof one way or the other from Shem Gamliel. Now the Gemara elaborates. We, we keep on saying, according to Shem Gamliel, there's a distinction between large defects and small defects. What's big and what's small? So the Gemara explains, these are considered big ones. Here's from Shem Gamliel, he explained. Let's say an eye was blind. His hand is cut off. Or his foot is shattered. So those are obviously big, large, major ones where we say that the defect is so big that um, she can, it makes sense that she, it warrants a divorce. She could say, I can't, I can't deal with this. Now the question is, how do we paskin? Again, we have a machlokas in the Mishnah. If a major defect, a woman can, can demand a divorce. She could demand a divorce if there's a, if there's a major defect. Even for a major, major defect, she cannot demand a divorce. Says the Gemara, so now, did Rabbi Yochanan say that we paskin like Rabbi Shimon Gamliel? We have another statement from Rabbi Yochanan, a general rule in Shas. Whenever Rabbi Gamliel is quoted in a Mishnah, whenever he appears in any Mishnah in Shas, halacha kamosa. Interesting idea. We always pass him like him. The three exceptions are a case about a guarantor, a case of the get in Sidon, and a case about a certain thing with evidence. So what the point is, we don't have to know those three cases. The point is to know the rule. You always pass like Rabbi Shimon Gamliel except for those three exceptions. Is this one of those three exceptions? It is not. So what's bothering the Gemara? Obviously the law is like Rabbi Shimon Gamliel. Why did Rabbi Yochanan have to make a specific point of saying here in our Mishnah? We pass in like Rabbi Shimon Gamliel that the husband. Um, that, that, that a major defect in the husband, the wife can demand a divorce. Why did he have to say that? He told us as a general rule that we always pass on the Gamshim and Gamliel except for three exceptions. This isn't one of them. So intuitively, I know that the Allah is right with Shim and Gamliel. So the Gemara is not bothered about the truth of the matter. The Gemara is bothered by the need to state the matter. Why did he have to tell me that Allah is right with Gamliel? If we have a general rule, he said that Allah is always right with Shim and Gamliel. So the Gemara answers, I'm already going to leave it to Rabbi Yochanan. This rule is actually not so simple that Rabbi Yochanan said it. Rabbi Barachanan was quoting that, um, uh, that, that was, was quoting in the name of Shemuel Gamliel, and then we have Rabbi Yaakov, who was quoting Rabbi Yochanan, I'm sorry, 
Rabbi Barakhanan was quoting Rabbi Yochanan and Rabbi Abba Rabbi Yaakov was quoting Rabbi Yochanan. They were both quoting Rabbi Yochanan and they quoted him differently. One said that there's a rule that we all possible and one was saying that it's unique here and it's actually a dispute whether or not we always pass like Rabbi Shemekam Gamliel. All right, so that was pretty simple Mishnah. Again, major defects. Does, could the wife demand a divorce? Rabbi Shemekam says yes. The Chum said no. We had a dispute if we're talking about a woman that developed or a woman that were there at the time of the Kedushin. Now the Mishnah continues with things that are so great that, um, that they might be different. Okay, so we're going to move on. They're, more diff- they're different than regular defects. Regular defects that we were talking about is, you know, a shattered arm, a blinded eye, something like that. Now we're going to move on to worse conditions. Elu These are men that we force for the divorce, meaning these things um, that even though we go like with Tanakama, the previous Mishnah, that even a major defect is not grounds for a divorce, but these things are. Mukashrin, if he's overcome with boils, we're going to talk about what the issue is if he has boils. Baal, everything will be explained more in the Gemara. Baal Pilopos, he has Pilopos, we'll see what that is. Hamikamit, someone who gathers together handfuls. The Gemara is going to say that it's referring to handfuls of excrement. He works with excrement and therefore is always a bad odor. Matzarf Nechoshes, he refines copper. Again, we're going to learn about that, why that's so bad. Aborsi, someone who tanners, he's a tanner. He works with a leather hide and hides. So that's, again, unbearable odor. This is true. If the defect was there before they married, whether it came after they were married, it makes no difference. The wife can terminate it. And the idea here is that this is more objectionable. And even if she was aware of it, we do not assume she really accepted it. There's no way she thought she could bear this. Concerning all of them, Rabbi Meir said, even if he stipulated, he had this job, right? He had the job in the leather factory and he made her stipulate. He says, you know, you have to marry me despite the fact that I have this issue. She could still say later, as we mentioned this idea previously, she told me she can say later, I thought I'd be able to, to accept it, but now I see I, mis, I misjudge myself. disagree. If he actually made a stipulation, she has to accept it against her will, meaning to say she cannot demand a divorce in a scenario if she explicitly accepted it. That's what the Chachamim are coming to say. Except for the one exception is the boils. Because the issue is, is that he can't have relations in the condition of boils. What will happen is that all of his skin will fall apart. So because of that, it's actually more for his benefit. Um, you know, in his benefit, it's either no relations, which is certainly grounds for divorce, or he's gonna, his whole skin will, will deteriorate and break apart if he has the boils. So since it's for his benefit, so therefore we actually do compel him to divorce his wife. We think it's the right thing to do. So the other things, Al Khamar is saying, if you explicitly agreed to, even though he worked in the leather factory, you said, I'll marry you, he can't come back later and demand a divorce. But if the issue is the boils, where it's not so much for her, it's, so much for, it's as much for him in his skin condition that will break apart if he has relations, then we actually do compel him to divorce. Like Mark gives us a story here. Mike Svetilin was a story in a, in, a, in, a, in a city named Sidon. Before Siachat Shemes, there was a tanner who died without any children. So that means what happens, his wife is falling to Yibam, to his brother. He had another brother. His brother was also a tanner. So, okay, you think, now I have to remember, what happens in Yavamas? You could either do Yibam or Chalitza. The woman said, I don't really want to marry this guy because he's a tanner. But they said, wait a second, you, you, you were married to a tanner. So what's your claim? You don't want to do Yibam, you want Chalitza because you don't want to do Yibam to a tanner. You were married to a tanner. So isn't that, is that a valid claim or not? Amr Chacham, the Chacham said, she could say, your brother I could tolerate, you I cannot. Meaning to say, it's not all the same. Right? It's not all the same. A person can be an amazing person, then she can overlook, you know, the fact that he has the bad smell coming over. 
but, but maybe she doesn't really like the brother as much, and then the other the order will bother her more. So that's just the nature of people. That's just the way people work, and therefore she can make that claim, and we would go with Chalitza as opposed to Yibam. So now the Gemara looks at one of these defects here. My Baal Pilopos. One of the things mentioned in the Mishnah is someone who had Pilopos. What is this? I'm Ravidim or Shmuel. Rechachotim, a bad odor from the nose. When he sees on the bride, says, Rechachotim, a bad odor from the mouth. And we mean in a chronic way. Ravasi taught it the opposite way. That Shmuel says it's an odor of the mouth, and the bride have said it's an odor of the nose. So they're just arguing which one is which. Marachlasimana, Ravasi, gave him a monic to remember that Shmuel was the one who said it's the odor of the mouth. Why? His gears it was, Shmuel, Shmuel's mouth did not stop learning the whole parak. meaning Shmuel was constantly reviewing this parak in Tzubis. It was evidently something that he liked a lot, so he would review this parak a lot. So it was lo pasuk mipume. It didn't stop from his mouth. And that's the mnemonic to remember that Shmuel was the one who said that Pilopos is the re'acha peh. That's just a mnemonic. It's just a way of remembering who said what. I'm a comrade, somebody who gathers. My comrades, what's this profession of gathering? What are you gathering? Omar, you lose a comrade, so is Klavim. Somebody is gathering the manure, some, the, the animal's excrement. So Rashi says that uh, he doesn't know exactly what they, do, what they did with this. But Rashi actually says that he observed in his times, Rashi writes, again, not so long ago, what is this, a thousand years ago, that um, they used to soak it in it before they would wash it. Interesting, very interesting idea. Um, so it was actually used, according to Rashi, perhaps, in laundering, so, but someone has to collect the excrement first. So that was this guy's job. Says the Gemara, Meswe Vakasha, on this definition, because the Bryce says, Makami Zeborsi. The Mishnah says that, the, um, that the, when we talk about someone who gathers, the, the Bryce says, when we talk about someone who gathers handfuls, it's a tanner, right? And that's the idea, because when you're tanning it, you also collect the dog manure, and I guess you, you put it onto the hides. That's part of the tanning process. Says the Gemara all the time, hey, if according to what you're saying that you want to translate it as a tanner, it takes you off my season, then you're not going to have a problem with the Mishnah. The Mishnah listed them as separate jobs. The Mishnah said, Hamakamates, that's the one in question. Hamitzarif, the one who refines copper, and a Choshes, or Hamitzarif and a Choshes, someone who refines copper, Vaborsi, or the tanner. So clearly, the first and the third thing can't be the same. The one who's gathering the handfuls is different from the tanner. So you can't say that works. So says the Gemara, no, I could. But Shalom season location, our Mishnah, it's not a question. Kamarosi Kaldo, Kamarosi Kaldo, and I could say there are two types of tanners. There could be of one who does it on a much bigger scale, and the one who gathers the handfuls is someone who does it on a much smaller scale. Meaning the question is, how many hides are you tanning? Are you doing it all day long? And you're doing it a ton? You're doing it just a little bit. And we could say that the Mishnah is speaking about either one. Elder, if you the Kasha, if you this difficult, he said it's talking about, um, the price he said it's talking about a tanner, and he said otherwise. So the Gemara explains Tanoi. In truth, it's a machlokes Tanoi. The Tanya, the comments are forced. One one opinion in the Brisa says it's the Tanya. Yisrael Mizakavis, so it's Klavim. The other one says no. Someone who's gathering the dog manure for a different purpose. So either way, it kind of seems so subtle here. I mean, the point is that he's handling the excrement. Does it make a difference if he's doing it to do laundry afterwards or to do the uh, the tanning of the hides? Either way, the point is the odor. But Akapanim, it seems like the mission was going through all of the different professions. All right. Now we said Mitzarif Nachoshes Vaborsi, the refiner of the copper. So the Gemara says, what exactly does that mean? What does he do with the copper? He makes the, he, he, he puts the copper, he pound, like they pound it out and they make sheets and they cover, cover pots or stuff, whatever they would use with them. So somehow that, that, that makes his body gross. We're talking about someone who's mining copper, not the one who's working with the copper in the factory. The guy who's getting the copper from the, from the, from the ground. The writer says exactly like he said, that there's one who's getting it from the ground. Says the Gemara, and now we get to another case where the court forces divorce. Remember, we spoke about that a husband has an obligation by the Ksuba 
to, uh, to sustain, to support his wife. So let's say a husband makes a claim. He says, I'm not going to feed her. I'm not going to provide for her. I'm not taking care of my wife. What's the law? Yes, you taking suva. Yes, divorce her and pay the suva. So the Gemara says, Azra Rebel Azra, Azra, He said this over in front of Shmuel. Amar, Shmuel said, Asuva Sarul al Azra, that al Azra should eat barley. What's his point that al Azra should eat barley? She barley, meaning to say, give him animal food. Like, this guy's an animal for saying such a thing. Shmuel is trying to say, like, this is clearly not the right halacha. The halacha to say that the person should, should, should divorce the wife instead of providing for her doesn't make sense. Instead of forcing him to divorce her, why don't you just force him to provide her with the food? Meaning, if you have the thing with the defect you can't cure, okay, there we have to force divorce. But here, what's the issue? This guy arbitrarily took a statement, I'm not going to sustain my wife. So make him sustain the wife. Compel him. Instead of compelling divorce, compel him to sustain. So the Gemara says, Rav defends, Rav, ain't Adam dar, a person can't live with the snake in the same basket. Meaning to say, you can force a person today, and what's going to be tomorrow? He's, if he's a jerk, he's a jerk. So you can't, you can't solve the problem. The guy's a snake. So the point is that it's not going to be a long-term solution. If it's not going to be a long-term solution, and the woman's constantly going to be living in the anxiety of not knowing where her next meal is coming from, so then we just compel the divorce. It's more like a greater defect. So it's an interesting dispute here. So it ends up being a dispute. If the husband is a guy who says, I'm not going to give her any food, do we force him to give food or do we force the divorce? And that's a dispute. Says the Gemara, what happens is all goes there. Zerah went up from Babel to Israel. So what happened was Ashley and Yemen he found Rabbi Yemen Yavis, the Yasukam, the Shemites, and Rabbi Yochanan. He was sitting over and saying what Rav said in front of Rabbi Yochanan. Um, they were saying the same thing that Rav said. So I'm like, says, Because of this thing, they fed a lazar the barley in Baal. <laughs> Meaning to say, like, be careful with what you're saying. Shmuel held that it was, uh, it was, it was a totally wrong ruling and that, and that they should force to give food. So there's different views on, on the matter. Says the Gemara, We don't force men to divorce their wives unless they are married to women who are users. So in other words, the Gemara is making a new point here. The Gemara is not disagreeing with the things in the Mishnah, but the Gemara is adding a different point that otherwise, in general, we don't force men to divorce, but if they are married to women who are disqualified for them to marry, then we do divorce. What are examples of that? He gave an example. If a widow is married to a coin, if a widow is married to a is married to a regular coin. A regular Yisrael is married to a regular A regular female Yisrael is married to a Nasser or a Mamzer. All these cases, these are disqualified. It's forbidden for them to be in the relationship, and therefore we compel divorce. You might remember this from Yavam Mustaf Samach Dalit. We had a long discussion that after a a couple is married for 10 years. They've been, having, they've been trying to have children for that amount of the time and they cannot. So we say, hey, the husband's got to divorce his wife. What's behind that? He has a mitzvah puravu, and we basically say that even though he could take another wife and have children, but he's not going to. On a practical level, as long as he's married to a woman he loves, then he's not going to. And there's a very difficult halacha over there that we suggest that the husband divorces his wife. Says the Gemara, but we don't force that. Very interesting thing. Meaning, of course, he's obligated to go marry another woman and have procreate. It's a mitzvah. A person's completely obligated to do that. There's no onus just because the woman you married is, um, is not working out. But, but to compel to the divorce on the first woman, that, that we don't do. Says the Gemara, different version. No, we do, we do compel. And the reason why we compel him to divorce is because we are nervous he'll never go ahead and actually take another woman unless he first divorces this one. So says the Gemara, let's, let's challenge this because the Mishnah didn't speak about that. Tanan, what did our Mishnah say? These are the women, the men that we force to divorce their wives. We've gone through all the defects of the Mishnah, the guy with the boils and the pilopos. So it said, these are the ones. So Bishlam, the Ravasi, that we also force 
We also force women who are married to husbands illegally, like disqualified people. But why isn't that in the Mishnah? Because we could say, The Mishnah only teaches cases where it's the rabbis who are requiring the divorce. We're not talking about cases where the divorce is required on a Daraisa level. Meaning, you shouldn't be nervous that how come the Amana Kohen Gadol, the Grusha to the Kohen, is left out of the Mishnah. That's not a Kasha. The Mishnah is not speaking about cases where the Torah warrants the divorce. The Mishnah is only speaking about cases that the rabbis want, warrant the divorce. Who says that if a man is married to a woman for 10 years and they don't have children, then what's the law? And we do compel him to divorce, which is obviously only rabbinic law, because by Torah law you can take another wife, then that should have been in the Mishnah. So shouldn't the Mishnah have taught that? If a man was married to a woman for 10 years and didn't have children, then we force the divorce. So how come it's not in the Mishnah? Must be, it's not true. Must be, we don't compel a divorce. It's not difficult. In the case where they didn't have children, we do force, but we only force with words. We only, you know, we, 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 we force him in a verbal way. We make it very clear to him that's what he should be doing. But in our mission, we use whips, meaning it's a very, very big difference. When it's a mitzvah of procreation that's behind it, then it's only words. But in our Mishnah, where the issue is the defect and how unfair it is to the woman, then we use whips. Says the Gemara, unbelievable concept here. We quote a Pasuk. That Pasuk says here in Mishle that words don't do anything. So if you need to discipline a person, words are, worth, are worthless. You either use the whip or you don't use the whip. But don't assume your words are going to have any impact. So the point of the Gemara is that if, if they're really said kofin, you can't say kofin means, you can't say that it means with, uh, with words, because obviously that's not going to force them. Both our Mishnah and procreation, we do force through whips. In other words, we do physically actually force them to do it, but there's a distinction. Awesome in the case of our Mishnah, if the wife says, I, uh, you know what, let me stay with him. We let her. It's all up to the woman. It's about some physical defect. So if an inner husband, so if she's okay with it, of course we'll let it we'll let we'll let them stay married. But in the case that they didn't have the children, even if she says I'll stay with him, we don't let her do it. Because it's not really about her. That's not the point. The point is that we, we, we say that he has to go ahead and marry another woman in order to procreate. Now again, I think we spoke about this in Yavamas how already the Rama says that practically we don't do this today. Practically there's enough to rely on. Uh, for the couples not to divorce. But here again, the Gemara, the Gemara is saying we don't let it. Says the Gemara, so what are you saying? You're only saying things that are up to the woman. But it's not true. One of the things in the Mishnah was the boils. Now the boils case, remember, wasn't about the def- it wasn't so much that the boils are bothering the wife. It was more that it makes it they can't be intimate with each other because if they'll be have relations, then his, his skin will break apart. So there, even if she would say, I'll stay with him, we wouldn't let her. It's not it said in the Mishnah, if they made the stipulation about the defects before the marriage, then she's forced to stay, except for because it causes it to fall apart. Tani, the Mishnah still said it. So basically, the Gemara's question is, you're saying it didn't speak about the couple who didn't have children for 10 years because we're not talking about things that are, that, that are, we're only talking about things that are up to the woman, but it's not true. Your rule is not true because we speak about Bukashkin where it's also not up to the woman. We would force the divorce because it's for his own benefit. Says the Gemara, if she says, I'll, I'll, I'll live with him with witnesses, meaning I love him so much that I'm willing to say, I'll live with him with witnesses to make sure that we never have relations. Meaning, the point with the boils there are, is, is that we're scared what's gonna to happen to the guy's skin if they, have, if they have relations. So she says she commits to only being around him in the presence of other people who will guarantee they, they're not privately intimate together, we would let them do so. But in the case of the 10 years, even if she says, you know what, I'll live together with witnesses, we won't let her do so because again, he has a mitzvah of procreating, which will not be fulfilled. 
All right, now the Gemara just moves on. A little medical issues here. Tanya says in a price from Rabbi Yossi, Sochli suck in Echel Antri Yishalayim. There's an older person in Yishalayim told me, Ezra Rabbi Muki Shechin, there are 24 different varieties here of Shechin. Ukulam Rucham Tashma Kashalem. For all the 24, the rabbi said the same thing. Don't have relations. Ubali Rasan Kashalem Ukulam. But the one with Rasan, Rasan is the worst type. So what is Rasan? So Rashi here seems to say there's some sort of thing that's present between inside, between the skull and the brain, some super scary thing that's present there, some sort of boil, and that, that's causing him a lot, a lot of pain. So the Gemara says, my havoc, where first of all, what can cause these types of boils? So the Gemara says, Tanya says in the Bible, hey, because now Vishim is your person, bloodlets, and then he has relations with his wife. He's going to have weaker children. In other words, if he impregnates his wife from such a relation, it's not going to be, they're not going to be strong. Both the husband and the wife had had, blood, uh, had, had their blood let before the relations. Then the children will be afflicted with Rasan. So that's where it comes from. Rasan comes from if the parents had blood let before relations. This that is true that they can, it's very not smart to have relations after bloodletting is only if you don't eat anything in between. You go straight from the the, the chair, right, to having relations. I will tell him, you left them, Bob, but if you did eat something, then it's not so objectionable. My see money, how can we tell? How, what are the symptoms here? The eyes are always teary, the nostrils are running, he's always spitting from his mouth, and there are flies always around him. Very interesting. Those are the symptoms. My see, how can you cure it? Cure it. So the Gemara tells us that there is a way of curing it. Amar Bai, Pila Valona, you take a type of, uh, a type of plant and some wood, some bark of a tree, shavings from a hide, the uh, kalu milka, a little type of flower, and some sort of dates. You boil all these ingredients together. You take the person into a house of marble. The point of, of shisha, of marble, is that there's no wind. If you don't have marble, at least it should be a very thick house where the wind doesn't blow in. Seven bricks and half bricks thick. You pour 300 cups of this stuff over his head. What's going to happen is that the whole surface of the skull will soften up. Then, once it softens, you can rip open the skull. It'll expose now what's there that's right by the brain. You bring four hadasim leaves. You lift up one, each leg and you put one, 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 one of these leaves underneath. Now you can actually take out this thing, you'll actually, some sort of organism, you can actually take it out at this point. The Kalile, and you go and you burn it. If you don't burn it, it's not enough that it's taken out of his body. If you don't destroy it, it will return to the victim. So actually, after removing it there by the brain, you actually have to go ahead and burn it. All right, now the Gemara tells us a little bit more. You gotta be very careful with the flies. In other words, people are nervous now about catching the germs. It's a disease. Evidently, and you can it, it, this, these things you can catch it if you're not careful. So, in other words, the flies that pick it up and then they, they transfer it. So, you got to be careful with the flies. didn't sit close of someone, um, of, of, of in the close to someone who had Razan. wouldn't go into the tent of someone who had Razan. They wouldn't eat eggs that came from that neighborhood. In other words, they felt that everything could be affected. It's like a shtickle plague over here, this Razan. Says the Gemara, Rabbi he had no problem. And now we're going to get on an amazing tangent of learning about Rabbi Shubham Levi. Rabbi Shubham Levi, just a little introduction, was in the earliest Amoram, and he was tremendous, tremendous Sadiq. So he says, I have no problem being close to the people who have Rasam. Why? He said, I have the power of learning Torah, and that is going to protect me, he said. 
So he wasn't, he wasn't nervous. Amar, he said, what does the Torah say about Torah? It's beloved and it causes a person to have a charm. There's a charm that a person has when they learn. So the Torah gives charm to the people who learn it. It's not going to protect them from disease. So that means the point of the Gemara is, the point of Rav and Levi is, if I got Torah, I'm good to go. Now the Gemara tells us more. Very famous Gemara here. Here we go. Don't ask me what this stuff means, but we have some very interesting stories about his death. It was time for him to die. They told the angel of death, go to do to Rabbi Shul and Levi, whatever, whatever he wants. Also, the Malach Hamavis goes and comes to Rabbi Shul and Levi. Amar Levi said, you know, my last request, I want to be taken to Ganeidin. I want to see my place. Meaning, before you kill me, he's saying that um, I want to see what it, what it will be like. What's this place in Ganeidin where I'm going to go after death? Well, what is this? So what happened? Um, the angel agreed. He said, fine. Right? In other words, he just wanted to see it. You know, he make himself calm and, and, and then I'll kill you, right? So he said, he said, I want your knife. I want your knife that you used to kill people. I'm going to be nervous. You're holding your knife the whole time. It's freaking me out. So let me, let me hold the knife. So the angel gave him the knife. When they got there, the angel picked the Shuban lady on top of the wall to show him the Ganeidin, where his place was. Shab. What happened was, Shavar Nafalahu Gisar, Rabbi Shuvan Levi jumped over the wall and landed in Gan Eden. The angel was holding on to him by the corner of his coat. Shuvan Levi makes an oath. He says, I swear I'm not going to return to the world. So now it's very interesting the complexity. Malcolm Aves wants to bring Shuvan Levi back. Right? He has a mission to kill him. On the other hand, he has an oath that he never go back from Shuvan Levi. So Malcolm Aves can't cause him to violate an oath. So Amar Kutshu God gets involved. And he says, If Rabbi Shubham Levi in his lifetime ever took an oath and got it annulled, he went to a rabbi to get it annulled and he has to return. Why? Because you see that a Shavuah is not uh, eternally binding. Elo, but if he never did such a thing, then he doesn't have to return. And meaning to say that the truth was Rabbi Shubham Levi had never had an oath annulled. Therefore, his power of an oath was totally binding. He was permitted to just stay in Gan Eden. So he was permitted to stay there. So the angel said, Shuvan Levi, give me my knife. Lava Levi wouldn't give it back. But Basco came out and said, no, 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 give him back the knife. He needs it for other people. Meaning, Shuvan Levi was trying to take it to protect himself to make sure no matter what happened, he wouldn't die. So other people needed it. So Shuvan Levi didn't die a regular death. Right? He just jumped into Gan Eden and that was it. Says the Gemara, Machers Elio Kamei Elio Anavi announced in front of him Panu Malkum Levi Levi clear a space for the son of Levi Panu Malkum Levi Levi All is Ashkem Shimon Yochai so now he's coming to the greats Reb Shimon Levi is meeting Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai Rabbi Yosef Atlas Azar Taski Pisa he's sitting on thirteen gold thirteen chairs of very fine gold What happened Amalei Atu Bar Levi Reb Shimon Yochai says to him Are you the son of Levi Amalei Hain he said yes So then he said to him the following question Very this is a very famous idea Nirasa Keshes Biyamecha in your lifetime, in this world, was there ever a rainbow that was visible? Amalehain, Shuvan Levi says, yes, there was. You're not the son of Levi. Meaning, you're not, the, you're not as righteous as everyone thinks. Because if you were really that righteous, then there would never have been a rainbow that was visible. And the idea of the rainbow, right? the, the bris, is that really when he is angry, he won't destroy the world anymore, and the symbol is the rainbow. So if the rainbow if the rainbow was ever visible, it's a sign that you're not on the highest madrego. You should have been able to protect your entire generation. So the Gemara says, Velohi. <coughs> Actually, it's not true. The law of media, there never was a rainbow in the time of Shuvah Malavi. He thought, I don't want to boast about myself. 
So he lied to Rav Shimon about how he was humble, that to say that there was a rainbow. But the truth was, there was no rainbow in, the, in his times. Says the Gemara, a similar thing happened here of Hanina Bar Papa. Baba was very close friend of the angel of death. That was his friend. He was Shishvina. He was a friend of the angel. When it was time for him to die, they told the angel of death, go to do, do to him whatever he wants. Also, very similar. The angel goes and he appears to him. Give me 30 more days in my, in my life so that I can review all of my Torah. Because what do we say? Fortunate is the person who comes to Olam Abba with the Torah knowledge in his hand. So meaning, give me 30 days to review it. So the angel of death left him for 30 days. After 30 days, the angel goes and appears said the same request for Shuman Levi. I want to see my place in Ganadin. The angel agreed. The same story seems to be happening. Give me your knife. You're going to make me nervous along the way. So this time the angel learned his lesson. He says, You want to do to me what your friend did? I know that trick. I know that trick. I am not giving it to you. Um, it's hard to understand why the knife helped, but evidently he wouldn't have been able to jump over it if the Malachim Abbas was still holding the knife. I don't fully understand that point. But, 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 but that's what he was saying. I'm not going to give you the knife, and that's why you're not going to be able to jump into Ganeidin. Uh, so I'm believing Rechlin Rabbah said to the angel, bring, let's bring a Sefer Torah and see me come to the Sefer Torah. Is there anything written in it that I didn't fulfill? Meaning, what he was trying to say is, but I, I should get the same schlussel to Rishul and Levi. You're telling me you're not going to give me your knife, and I'm, you're going to prevent me from jumping over, but I did everything in the Torah. I'm on the same level. The angel said, No, you're not on the same level. Why? Because you never learned Torah in front of people with Rasulun and said, I'm not scared. Shuvan Levi was on that level that he was so connected to his Torah that he was, he was able to interact with people with Rasulun and he wasn't nervous about getting afflicted. You, that was one thing you, you didn't do. So that's why he didn't jump into Ganeidin alive. Afilo Hachi, the Gemara concludes, even though he wasn't Zoha for that. When he did die, there was a fire, a column of fire that appeared and separated between him and everyone else. We have a tradition. We don't have this column of fire that separates. From one person generation or perhaps two. In other words, the point is that it shows that the person was totally distinct from other people. Um, so that was the point that at least he merited to have that high level of distinction. The Gemara says, though he approached the fire. He said to Rabbi he started talking through the fire. He said, do for the cover of the Chachamim. Meaning to say, take away the fire. Because it's making all the other rabbis look bad. Only you got the fire, nobody else did. So even if you deserve it, we should have the fire removed for the glory of the other rabbis. The column of fire didn't move. Do it for the sake of your father's honor, right? Your father didn't have it, and you have it. It's, 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 it looks bad on your father. Again, the fire doesn't care. Do it for your own honor. Why? Because or else people aren't going to be able to get to you. They're not going to be able to give you a hesper. They're not going to be able to bury you. They're not going to be able to deal with your body. At that point, the column of fire went away. Says the Gemara, It's made to separate the really righteous person from someone who didn't fulfill the Torah on the level um, as a level of he did. That's, the, that's like the point. Um, to, you have to be totally, totally righteous, righteous, righteous to get this fire. Says the Gemara, it's very interesting. Now the Gemara is like amazing what happens in the base Medrash. This is what Abai says. Even if a person did, you know, 612 mitzvahs, but one mitzvah he was a little bit lax in, he's not going to get the column of fire. So Amalei Rav Adar Masa, says to Abai, he says, that means you're not going to get it. Why? You don't have a, you don't have a fence on your roof. 
That's a mitzvah in the Torah. If you have a roof, you need a fence. So, so, so he's like taken out and like out of left field. You're that guy. He's not going to get the. He's not going to get the fire. So the Gemara says, "Velo, it's not true." Of course, he had a fence. But Zika just happened to be at that particular moment. Ravada was there. The wind had thrown it down. The Gemara concludes. How come in Bavel, right? We're talking about these Bali Rasam people in Israel and the Mishnahites. How come in Bavel we don't see these people? Because they eat beets and they drink beer with hops that grow on shrubs. So evidently, that is very healthy. And therefore protects them from Rasan. Another thing we're talking about, and we've spoken a lot about this. Here we go. Oakland, they eat the beets, they drink the beer. That's something that's very common in Talmud. The beets and the beer. And they bathe in the waters of the Pras. So all of this together provides them the, the, the fighting against this disease.